You're listening to Ketchikan Church of the Nazarene. Lord, we thank you for these kids and the way their hearts and feet are being turned towards your kingdom. We ask now that they would evermore fall in love with you, that the words of your scriptures would take root in their heart and grow and grow and grow. May they be world changers for you even now when we pray this in your name. All right, the children are heading downstairs, and the adults are staying upstairs. We're picking up where we left off um, last week. Uh, we are in an Advent series, uh, and as we reviewed with the candles, uh, in Advent we're talking about this anticipation of hope. Advent is that fancy word which simply means the arrival of or the entrance of. And so we think that when like the president walks into the room, that's the advent of the president, right? Um, so when I walked into the room this morning, it was the advent of Peter and I celebrated and it was wonderful, right? But I was really the only one here, so it was just me. Um, but advent is just a fancy word that means arrival or entrance. Um, it's a time of year that we use to look backwards in history when Christ first had his advent, when he was born as a baby, right? And we celebrate the fact that he had an advent, he arrived, he came, he showed up on the scene as a baby. And we use that as motivation to help us look forward to when he will have a second advent, his second coming, when he will come with strong victory uh, to wrap the world up according to his will. And we look forward to that with anticipation. So the first week we kind of discussed what the anticipation of hope is. How do we anticipate hope when the world is falling apart? How do we have hope when it seems like everything is falling apart around us? And we realize that scripture tells us the more the world falls apart, the closer we are to Jesus coming back. So we can anticipate that no matter how bad it gets, the closer we are to seeing Jesus again. We can anticipate with excitement. Last week, we looked at uh, this idea of uh, holiness that there is a hope that we have, and it's the way of holiness. And when John the Baptist preached to the people and he said, hey, come to the water and uh, be baptized in repentance for the forgiveness of sins because I'm preparing a way in the wilderness and all the mountains are going to be brought low and all the valleys are going to be brought up and all the brambles are going to be cleared away and you are going to have a clear, straight shot to walk towards my holy kingdom. And that is what John the Baptist was preaching. There is a way of holiness, and it gives us great hope that God will work that out in our lives. And so Advent is also the anticipation of a holy life that we can have through Christ. Today, um, we are going to look at a different aspect of this, the generosity of hope. Um, and again, this is a slightly different take than our normal Advent series. We're going to pick up where we left off last week where John the Baptist continued to preach the gospel to people. And it was left with this really encouraging moment. But his sermon is, is a challenging sermon. Um, and we're doing it in two chunks. Last week was really great, right? It was super encouraging. There's a way of holiness. The world, the world is going to, God's going to bring the mountains low and the valleys high. And yeah, yeah, yeah. This, this, I need to prep you. This is a hard sermon that John the Baptist preached, Okay. Um, if I were to get up here and say the same things that he said to you just because, you would probably be like, oh, and get up and walk out. Because what he said really rubbed people the wrong way. But he did it for the glory of God and great good came from it. So I'm going to ask uh, the Lord to help us submit to the words of John the Baptist together because they are the words of the Lord for us, preserved down through time. 
um, to help us hear these hard things and have them shape us in his image a little bit. And we're going to dive into the word in just a moment. Lord, as we read your word this morning, as we hear some really challenging things from John the Baptist that might actually rub up against our pride, uh, the way we live life, um, and our own self-conceived ideas about our religiosity, um, would you help move those things out of the way? Would you be faithful to us in that you are going to clear a path for us to hear your truth this morning and your hope for our lives and the righteousness that you pour out towards us generously? Um, may we receive the words and then live differently because of them, because that is how we are supposed to react to the word of God. I ask that you be with us as we read your words this morning and all the glory goes to you. And all God's kids said, amen. amen. We are going to be in Luke chapter 3. It's going to be on the screen for you. Um, and, uh, and if you want to follow along and you have the Faith Life Bible app, then uh, you can do it that way as well. Luke chapter 3, picking up um, where he left off last week. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized in him. Okay, because they came because he said, be baptized for the repentance of the forgiveness of sins. He, they came out to be baptized by him. And he said to them, you brood of vipers, who told you to come? Who told you to flee of the wrath that was coming? Well, that's great. That's everything that people want to hear when they come to church, right? You come to church in the morning, you want a message of God loves you, your sins are forgiven, everything's great, we're happy Jesus people. And instead, John the Baptist says, you are a brood of vipers. This is like venomous language here. We're going to get into that in a minute. Who told you to come here and escape wrath? I.e., you guys are acting like you deserve wrath. Who gave you a heads up that you should come here? This is, you come to church broken, right? And you need Jesus, right? And you need grace, right? You do not expect to hear, you dirty brood of vipers, sinners, sinners, sinners. I wish that you'd stayed away because you deserve the wrath. That's kind of the rough translation here. Yeah. Who told you to flee from the wrath to come? How did you know to come here? You need to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. If you've repented, your life needs to look like it. Don't begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. He knew what was going on in their heart. He knew the minute he was challenging their preconceived ideas of their faith and their life, that they were immediately going to begin justifying themselves. Because that's what we do, right? When someone challenges our preconceived ideas of the way we do life, we immediately start to blister on the inside and try and find a way to prove ourselves right before they can even get it out of their mouths. He said, don't, don't know. Don't you even try and say that you're Abraham's kids, okay? Because I tell you, that God is able to, from these stones right here in front of me, raise up children for Abraham. Translation, you guys aren't being that faithful. Even if you claim Abraham, you're not really living like you follow God. These stones are going to be more faithful to God than you are. This is really harsh language for John. This is fire and brimstone preaching, okay? Even now, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. This is fire and brimstone preaching, the very first Baptist sermon ever preached, okay? And the crowds asked him, what should we do? What's interesting to me is they stayed. They were insulted. They were challenged. They were told the way that their faith was going was hypocritical, and yet they didn't leave. 
This tells me that they really must have been hungry for the way of God. They must have really been hungry for righteousness. They must have really wanted to learn how to live a life that pleases God. And so the crowds asked him, what then shall we do? And he answered them, well, if you have two tunics, then share with him who has no tunics. This is simple math. And if you have food, then you should share likewise. Okay? So if you have an abundant supply, share it. Okay? And then the tax collectors came to him. They came to be baptized. And they heard the message and they said to him, well, teacher, what should we do? I mean, we're not the general crowd. We're tax collectors. Our situation is kind of complex. And so what should we do? How does the kingdom of God and generosity intersect our lives? And he said to them, collect no more than you are authorized to do. Like, could have had a V8 moment. This is not hard math, he's thinking. Just stop extorting your own people. And then the soldiers came to him. Roman soldiers came to John the Baptist and said, whoa. What should we do? Our life is also kind of complicated. We serve Caesar, but now we want to serve the Lord. What should we do? John the Baptist said, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation and, and be content with your wages. But as the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether or not he might be the Christ, John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water. But he who is mightier than me is coming, the strap of whose sandals I'm not even worthy to untie, and he will baptize you with Holy Spirit and fire, and his winnowing fork is in his hand. Remember, he's coming with authority and power at the end of the age when he comes again. And his winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather all of the wheat into his barn, and all of the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Fire and brimstone preaching! And so with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. And then you start to wonder, this is a terrifying message. This is not what I would consider good news for the people. Because it ends with fire and brimstone and then just casually goes back to, and he preached good news to the people. And I wonder if the people that day felt as confused as I felt when I read this message. Because he is saying, listen. You came to be baptized. You came to say you were sorry. But you're like trees that aren't producing good fruit. God's going to do something about that. You claim to live a life of repentance. You claim that your life is built in the kingdom of God. You claim to be a part of it by coming here and being baptized. And yet, you don't actually live that way. You make excuses. You justify your behavior. You're not really generous with other people. Uh, you exhort money from your own people. Yeah, you serve and proclaim uh, a false deity in the Roman Caesar. And so um, why do you live one way and proclaim another thing? That's no good. He used um, some insults to get the people warmed up, right? Um, he's not the kind of preacher that starts with jokes. He's the kind of preacher that starts with, I'm going to insult you, but it will eventually lead to you coming to Christ. Um, not a method they teach in seminary. Um, I think unique to John the Baptist. He starts with this insult where he calls them a brood of vipers. And the, the word viper is uh, referencing a very specific snake that ate its young. Right? 
Um, and so when he said this to them, he gathered the crowd together and he said, I've seen you have come for forgiveness. But you are nothing more than that snake that eats its young. Because the way you live brings death instead of life into the world. The way that you live is destroying the witness of Christ for the next generation. You say one thing and you do another thing. You are a brood of vipers. They wanted the mental image of eating young. That's how distraught John the Baptist was over the way the general crowds were living. You claim one thing, you live another way. Stop that is what he says. The next insult, he says, uh, is not necessarily an insult, but a challenging of their own identity um, because the Holy Spirit spoke to John must have because he called them on their heart before they said it out loud, right? Because if someone tells me, you're a, mm, I don't know, whatever, insult me, I'm immediately in my heart going to say, no, I'm not, and then find a way to vocalize that out loud, find a way to prove them wrong, even if I'm trying just to puff up my own image, right? We were all guilty of this in some way, shape, or form. Before they can even get to it, he says, and parents, you can relate to me. You can hear like when you challenge your children um, and then you can hear the excuse coming, right? You know that it's about to come out of their mouth and justify their actions. And you're like, nope, don't you even say it, right? That's exactly what he did. He parented them. He said, don't you even say you're Abraham's children. Don't claim just because you descended from Abraham, you and God have a special relationship, so you get to get away with saying one thing and doing another. It doesn't work like that. You're like trees that are not producing fruit. And God is coming with an ax. And he's gonna do something about those trees that are not producing fruit. This is terrifying, okay? We should feel a little bit of, okay? Because we might be a lot like this crowd. And if we say we're not, we might need to let the Holy Spirit speak to our heart. Because our default nature is to be like this crowd. Our default nature is to become a brood of vipers. Our default nature is to claim, oh, but I'm a child of Abraham. I've been forgiven by Jesus. I can do what I want. That's our default nature. He then continues. Uh, these people have been insulted, right? Uh, they've been challenged, right? And to my surprise, they didn't leave. They stayed. I think this is, this is powerful preaching. Maybe we ought to teach this in seminary, okay? So the people stayed, and they asked a question after question after question. So here's John. He's preached his guts out, and then he's got the general crowd, and all of their hands are in their air. Anybody remember Mr. Cotter, the TV show? Mm -hmm. uh, what was that guy's name? Horshack, thank you. And he was always in the back going, ooh, ooh, Mr. Cotter, Mr. Cotter. Okay, that's kind of what the crowd was. That guy in the back, always with his hand raised, I got a question. Oh, pick me, pick me, I got a question. And the crowd was all doing that. They're like, oh, oh, um, what are we supposed to do now? What do we do now that we know that we're sinners that have not lived the way God has wanted us to live, even though we said we live that way? How should we fix our lives? And he pretty plainly said, listen, <coughs> Why don't you try living a life based in generosity? Um, for example, he said, if you have two coats, why don't you give one coat to someone who doesn't have a coat? Well, if you don't have two coats, if you have extra food, why don't you give that extra food away? It's a really interesting follow-up to 
um, what should I do to be saved kind of question. And he says, just share your coat. There's no additional repent and be saved, right? Um, because they had already repented. So now what they are really asking and what he is really answering is not how to be saved, but how to live that life that you claim to live. How to make the kingdom real in your life. If you claim that you belong to God's kingdom, then your life should markedly look like the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God is marked by generosity. Right? So if you claim that you are part of the kingdom of God, then John the Baptist tells us you ought to live a generous life. He says, so let's just think about coats. He's just throwing ideas off the top of my head. It could have been anything, right? In our modern day and age, we could insert a myriad of other things, right? Food and clothing, pretty basic needs, right? Universal, that's something we can all do. He's not saying give all your food away. He's saying if God has given you extra, you don't need it. Stop hoarding it. Give it to someone who does need it. And then what's interesting is the, the crowd um, gets narrowed down now. Now you start to see specific groups of the crowds come out. Um, first, it's, uh, what is it, the tax collectors? Yeah. The tax collectors came and said, okay, um, we're a little bit different than the general population. We're Jewish people, right? We're descended from Abraham, and, and, and we're, we're practicing Jews. Uh, but our people don't like us very much. Uh, in case you didn't know this, John, uh, we kind of steal from our people um, under threat of all kinds of horrible things. And, and we have to collect taxes from the Roman government, uh, but we also take extra. Um, so we're actually pretty rich, and this is the way we live our life, rich on the expense of our countrymen. Um, what are we supposed to do? Well, how, how, do we, how do we fix the, how do we live a generous life now? And he said to them, Peter's translation, stop taking extra, right? Collect no more than you are authorized to do so. Stop fleecing your people. One of the ways that we can live in a generous kingdom, aside from sharing the things that we have, is to stop making it more difficult for other people to live their lives. We should not enslave people. We should not encourage debt. We should not place people in a position where they can't survive. And then the Roman soldiers came forward. These are Roman soldiers. They serve Caesar. But they have come and repented of their sins. They are... Christ followers now, right? Um, and so they are suddenly in a quandary. Caesar is Lord, but now we say God is Lord. Uh, how, John, how do we do this? How do I still be a soldier in the Roman army? How do I go to a really secular workplace where my faith is not allowed and still please God and live in his kingdom? This is really like real for our age. And he said to them, stop exhorting money from anyone by threats. Don't use your authority for your own gain. Don't do any false accusation. Stop lying about people to pad your numbers, okay? They probably had some sort of system about arrests, you know, and how many they had quotas and whatnot and so forth, so that they could get up the ranks. Don't do that, be honest, okay? and be content with your wages. 
make a soldier's pay, be content with a soldier's pay. John's trying to teach the people, no matter where they come from in this crowd, that the kingdom life, the life of generosity, can be played out in every avenue of life. The kingdom of uh, hope is marked by generosity um, through humility. Every single thing that John told these people takes an act of humility. For a tax collector to stop exhorting wages, they probably are going to have some conversations with people. I'm, I'm sorry. I mean, Zacchaeus, right? He actually paid back four times fold what he took from people. He showed that he truly repented in that. Um, if you agree to receive repentance, that generous forgiveness that God gives us, you are entering into the kingdom of God through the lens, through the veil, through generosity of Christ, then everything you do needs to be marked by generosity. Um, we see that in Christ's life. Um, he came humbly, right? Born as a baby. We've sung the songs this morning. Um, Silent night, an infant holy, infant lowly. And it's this idea of God just sheds everything that he is in heaven wraps his deity in flesh and lays aside all of his authority doesn't get rid of it he's still fully god fully god wrapped in full flesh and that's humility at its peak god become man and not just that then he he walks the earth and he dies in our place for our sins on the cross humbly willingly enduring false accusations which the told soldiers aren't supposed to do anyway right he's betrayed um Stabbed in the back by a friend. All this kind of stuff. And he endured it humbly to generously give us his life. Philippians, um, there we go. Kingdom of hope is marked by generosity. Philippians talks about this. And it says, think of yourselves the way Christ Jesus thought of himself. He had equal status with God, but didn't think so much of himself that he had to cling to the advantages of that status no matter what. Not at all. When the time came, he set aside those privileges of deity. And he took on the status of a slave. He became human. And having become human, he stayed human. And it was an incredibly humbling process. He didn't claim special privileges. Instead, he lived a selfless, obedient life. And then he died a selfless, obedient death. And the worst kind of death. A crucifixion. And because of that obedience, God lifted him high and honored him far beyond anyone or anything ever. So that all created beings in heaven and on earth, even those long ago dead and buried, bow in worship before Jesus Christ and call out in praise that he's the master of all to the glorious honor of God the Father. So we have this picture of Jesus Christ, whom through we enter into faith, demonstrating this humility and this generosity of life. His whole life was generosity. Everywhere he went, people asked of him, and he gave. It cost him his time. It cost him his ability to have a home, a place to lay his head. It cost him his friendships. He was poor, right? He didn't have much more than the tunic on him. I mean, he had to pay his taxes by going fishing. Okay? Um, he had nothing tangible, and yet he had an abundance to continually give from because he lived in God's kingdom. He tells a parable, Jesus does. Um, a parable is just a tiny story with a big meaning. And uh, Jesus tells this parable, and it's a lot like John the Baptist's message. Um, and it reminds us that the kingdom of God is a generous kingdom. 
So if you don't necessarily think you need to listen to John the Baptist because his sermon freaks you out, maybe listen to the words of Jesus. They say the same things, okay? Come from the same God. Here we go. Matthew chapter 18. The kingdom of God is like. So if ever you want to know what the kingdom of God is like, look through the Gospels and find the sentences that say the kingdom of God is like. And then you have a very good idea of what the kingdom of God is like. The kingdom of God is like a king who decided to square accounts with all of his servants. And as he got underway, one of his servants was brought before him who had run up a debt of $100,000. And he couldn't pay it. So the king ordered the man and his wife and his children and his goods to be auctioned off at the slave market. The poor wretch threw himself on the king's feet and begged, just give me a chance and I'll pay it all back. And touched by his plea, the king let him off and erased the debt. That's huge, right? Isn't that generous? It's amazing. There's more of this story. The servant was no sooner out of the room when he came upon one of his own fellow servants who owed him $10. He seized him by the throat and demanded, pay up now. And the poor wretch threw himself down and begged, give me, give me a chance and, and I'll pay it all back. But he wouldn't do it. And he had him arrested and put in jail until the debt was paid. When the other servants saw this going on, they were outraged. And they brought a detailed report to the king. And the king summoned the man and said, you are an evil servant. I forgave your entire debt when you begged me for mercy. Shouldn't you be compelled to be merciful to your servant who asked you for mercy? The king was furious and put the screws to the man until he paid back his entire debt. And that's exactly what my father in heaven is going to do to each one of you who doesn't unconditionally forgive anyone who asks for mercy. Ugh. We live a life of generosity. And we think generosity is based on financial goods. We think generosity is based on tangible things. The generosity God is really talking about is spiritual generosity. The generosity which he has richly bestowed on us through Christ Jesus, his son. He has given us every spiritual blessing with him, right? And then he says, because I've forgiven you of much, all your sin debt, a debt you could never pay back, now go and do that towards others. Be generous. Show them what the kingdom looks like. The kingdom looks like forgiveness. The kingdom looks like mercy. The kingdom looks like never running out of generosity. And the beauty of that is you never will. Um, the old adage is you can't outgive God. So the more you are generous, the more you can be generous. You can't run out of generosity with God. He will just keep filling you back up with opportunities and resources and willingness to be generous. But it all starts with this. It all starts with recognizing that you've believed in Christ and you've received his generosity, but you've not lived his generosity. And well, we read it. He has some pretty strong words to say about that. So we need to evaluate our hearts this morning. We really need to listen to what John the Baptist says. I don't want to think the question to myself, am I a brood of vipers? Do I proclaim one thing on Sunday morning as the pastor and then live another way during the week? And if I'm honest, there are areas in my life that don't match the way God would have me live. And that needs to be dealt with. I don't want one day Jesus to stand before me and go, you brood of viper. 
You lived one way and proclaimed another thing. I want to hear, well done, my good and faithful servant. Your debt has been paid. I've seen the life of generosity you've lived. Welcome into your rest. That's what our hope is, right? That's what our, our joy is set upon. That's what we're looking forward to. That's why we don't fear the return of Jesus, because our sins have been forgiven. But how many people in this world fear the return, fear the end of the world, because they misunderstand and they fear the wrath? We have an opportunity to speak mercy and grace and hope and generosity into people's lives. And in this season, they are particularly ready to hear it. This is a season we can leverage for the gospel and its generosity. I'm going to pray, and the worship team is going to come up and sing. We're going to sing that song that we sang right before the sermon again. We're going to let those rich lyrics move in our hearts and our minds. And we're going to... Maybe pray as individuals. Maybe the, you come to the altar and you kneel and you ask God to show you the area in which you are kind of inconsistent. Maybe you recognize you need just a little extra something this morning with Jesus. You need to go a little bit deeper than just sitting in your chair. We've got communion elements in the back. If you want to go and partake of the bread and um, the cup, uh, the meal that says Jesus' body was broken for you and his blood was shed for you and you enter through the forgiveness because of Jesus, then that meal is available for you. The altar is open. The meal is open in the back. You can worship in your seats. But whatever you don't do, don't be the silent one in the crowd who says, I have no part in this. This plays no part for me. I live just fine with Jesus. We all have steps we can take. And so I encourage you to take those steps with Jesus today. Lord, we love you. We long to experience the fullness of your generosity played out in our lives. We've been forgiven of so much that I think we don't even really understand the depth that we have escaped, the wrath that's no longer hanging over us. In these moments as we worship you, as we lift our voice to you, as we sing a new song to you, as we proclaim the gospel in hope out loud. Would you work in our hearts? Would you reveal to us the areas that are inconsistent with your kingdom? Would you do it in the way that best suits our hearts? Would you speak to each one of us individually? Some of us are going to need a really soft touch this morning, Father, because we're hurt and we're wounded and we're confused and we're uncertain. Some of us have a lot of pride, and we're going to need some strong words, like John the Baptist-style words, directly to our soul this morning. You best know, Father, how to communicate to each one of your children, and so you do what you do best, and we will be here listening to you. We love you. We love that you've forgiven us. Would you help us live a life that is marked by your kingdom? give you all the glory and all the honor. Receive now the praise of your children. We pray this in your name. You've just heard a message from Ketchikan Church of the Nazarene. To learn more about our church or to support our ministries, you can visit ktnnaz.org.